Let us pray. O kind and gracious God, once more we pray that you would set us free from the bondage of our sins. Renew our hearts and our minds as we always pray so often by your Holy Spirit in the name of Jesus. That we would reflect the same kind of response that we hear of Paul describing of the Thessalonians. That we would draw near to you despite everything around us. And we would find you as the one and only true God. We ask this all through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. This morning we continue our, our time in Paul's epistles. We just finished up with Philippians and we're moving now into 1 Thessalonians. Just with the way the weeks fall with All Saints Day coming up, we'll end up missing a little bit of 1 Thessalonians. But that's okay. All Saints is an important day coming up in a couple of weeks. I look forward to preaching about All Saints and why that's important. But right now, we're going to talk about some of the saints at Thessalonica and the fact that they were idol worshipers. It seems almost like a throwaway line there in verse verse 9 and 10 where Paul says, about how everything has gone out around them, about how they, the Thessalonians, turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. But I think it's important to hone in on that passage, that they were idolaters, that they turned to God from idols. They were idolaters at heart. Their lives were shaped and molded by the idols around them. I don't know what specific idols that they probably worshipped there. Thessalonica was the capital of Macedonia. It was the hub of everything happening in that region, in that district of the Roman Empire. And so being a hub, I'm sure that they were thoroughgoingly worshipers of the emperor alongside the entire Roman pantheon of gods. And maybe even on top of that, some of the Greek gods too that lined up with their Roman counterparts because Rome just borrowed the same concepts of who the gods were from the Greeks and renamed them. So they're all worshiping all these different idols there. And that's who the Thessalonians were. But St. Paul's words about them turning from idols to the living God make me pause just for a moment to think about what is an idol at its core. In olden times, an idol was a created image that people worshipped. The image pointed to a spiritual reality behind that created image, whether it was wood or gold or silver or some other metal. It was a creature, though, that was assumed to have power over some aspect of reality. Whatever God was represented by that image was but a creature who participated in reality. None of these gods ultimately pre-existed everything else. In some way, they were linked into the reality, and so people worshipped them in the hopes of also having control over that part of reality. Fertility gods were all the rage for much of recorded history. Everyone wanted children to help them get ahead in life. But ironically, these fertility gods often demanded the sacrifice of those very children to get ahead. They demanded the sacrifice of children to get the fields to grow, 
wheat and corn and barley and all and the grapes and the olives. Those kinds of gods would grant good crops, which is important in these agricultural societies. That was the source of wealth. And whatever it took, even murdering their own children was worth the cost of getting ahead. The most famous of those gods probably is Molech himself. Known for just the absolute abhorrence of the number of children sacrificed to him. Just to get an idea of how horrible some of this child sacrificing was, one of my professors in seminary, when he was on an archaeological dig, was digging up an idol's site. And in the ground he found tens of thousands of bones to children. Tens of thousands of children just buried there in this archaeological site. Just left there in a mass grave. Sacrificed and just tossed aside. Not thought about anymore by the people sacrificing. The idolatry stripped people of their humanity. The idols controlled their lives. And they stripped the way the image of God. It made people reject that they were made in the one true God's image. That he created us in his image. These gods were capricious beings that at a whim would turn on you. They would turn from the promises that they made and wreak havoc on their people. The slightest slight and they would turn. They would destroy you if it would further their cause of being recognized as gods. Honestly, they were little more than madmen writ large. And those are the kinds of gods that the Thessalonians worshipped. Capricious gods who didn't care about humans, who only wanted glory and honor, who didn't love, who didn't have mercy, who didn't have compassion. And yet, with a word from St. Paul, he spoke of a different God. He spoke of one who forgave sins, who forgave wrongdoings, who offered mercy and compassion in light of brokenness. The Thessalonians heard of a God who cares. A God who deals with our sins in a way that no other God has done before. This God mysteriously came to earth, taking on human flesh, being born of a virgin. And took our very sins, all those things that deserve actual retribution, onto himself. And instead of multiplying wrath, turned from it. That humanity might be forgiven. That humanity might know forgiveness. And this kind of message was different for the people. This kind of word was life-changing for them. This kind of word was something that had not been heard before. It was a glorious word that changed lives. And the people responded, and they were changed. They discovered a humility that was brought forth through faith. And that faith meant that their life was going to be new and different and something they had not known before. That was what the gospel brought to these people, the Thessalonians. It brought them humility, which flowed out of faith and trust in this Savior. And as we walk through this passage, we're going to hear about that, this capital of Macedonia. 
this capital and hub of commerce, where so many people turn from their idols. And the first thing that we see there in verse 2 is that Paul responds to their response with thanksgiving. You see, at that time, Paul wasn't in Thessalonica for very long. Over in Acts 17, it gives us a few verses about his time there, where he went into Thessalonica, and for three Sabbaths he preached in the synagogue. And many Jews and God-fearers, that is, Gentiles who had come to believe that Yahweh was the one true God, turned to Jesus. They turned to this new message that Paul had brought to them, and they responded. Now, the book of Acts only mentions those three Sabbaths for a time frame for us. But I have a feeling Paul probably was there a little bit longer because he was staying in the house of Jason. And while he was there, people were turning and converting and the Jews that didn't convert got jealous. They raised up a mob and went after Paul there at Jason's house. But Paul wasn't there. He was out doing work. And so they dragged Jason out to the authorities and were complaining that he was housing people who were preaching other kings, who were saying that Jesus is king, not Caesar. And so the authorities extorted money from Jason and then sent him on his way. And then the believers took Paul and Silas and Timothy and sent them on their way that later at night. We're not sure how much time fully passed, but we know that they spent at least three Sabbaths there. And the people responded to Paul's message. But then affliction came about. Persecution came about. And Paul and Silas and Timothy had to flee, leaving these new believers there on their own probably with a couple of appointed leaders who could help out, but they didn't have Paul there anymore. They didn't have the apostle there to help guide them in their faith. But nonetheless, he is thankful to them. He is thankful to God for everything that God is doing in them, that they have works of faith, labors of love, steadfastness of hope in Jesus Christ, that no matter what, the afflictions that were brought upon them that they were in the midst of, and held to their faith was a demonstration that the Holy Spirit was at work in them. The gospel was not only words to them, but it was the power of God, the power of the Holy Spirit. It was the power of conviction in them. And Paul is thankful for that response that they have. He constantly remembers them in his prayers. And he was able to eventually send Timothy back over to them. Because it's Timothy who brought a letter from them. And it's that letter that Paul is responding to right now in 1 Thessalonians. Paul is in Corinth at this point. He's been working there and Paul and Silas or Silvanus as Paul refers to him in this letter. And Timothy had been working together. And Silvanus and Timothy had gone back into Macedonia and worked. And Timothy specifically went to Thessalonica to see how they were, and he brought back a wonderful report of how they were growing in the faith. And that growth in the faith flowed out of a humility from the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit brought humility to them in his conviction. As they came to trust in the Lord, they came to discover humility. Their lives were changed because humility leads to change. Humility isn't this sense of, oh, I'm worthless, I'm no good. No, humility is seeing yourself in the light of who you really are. And that's what's happened for the Thessalonians. When they heard the message of the gospel, they heard about this God come to earth, this God who forgives sins, who draws near and brings blessing by his spirit. 
They responded and their lives were changed. Humility brings change to lives. Humility allows change to occur. People who don't change are people who are not humble. Without humility, we never change. Because humility doesn't assume one's rightness in every single moment of the day. Humility says, I can be wrong. Humility says, I often am wrong. But thanks be to God that he forgives my wrongs. That he restores me to his presence and into his fellowship, into a new kind of life, so that I can live for him. You see, in the Thessalonians' humility, Paul says in verse 6, you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. That was the change that occurred in them. They went from being idolaters to becoming people with a humble nature. People of humility. People who became imitators of Paul, and not only of Paul, but of Jesus himself. That they received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. And thus became an example throughout Macedonia and in Achaia, throughout all of what is modern day Greece and beyond. The word, in fact, sounded forth from them in Macedonia and Achaia. They caused the word to spread from Thessalonica, to reverberate outward. That their faith in God has gone forth everywhere. And thus Paul doesn't have anything to say about their lack of faith. He is joyful in seeing what God is doing in them, the humility that is occurring in them. This godly humility, this deep change that has occurred at the core of their being and has reverberated outward. The very thing that I think we constantly have to return to as believers. We constantly have to return back to humility. Back away from our sins and to confess those sins. Humility means confession, ultimately. Humility leads to confession. It flows out of faith and trust. And is entangled and wrapped together with faith and trust. Because after all, there takes a sense of humility in order to even trust Jesus. Humility to say, I can't do this on my own. Humility to say, I am a sinner who needs forgiveness. But faith is what leads to us receiving that forgiveness. Faith is what receives it. Humility recognizes the need, and faith clings onto it. But both are a work of the Holy Spirit in us, and both continue to grow more and more and more. As they grow in the faith, they grow in humility, they grow in trust, so that no matter the afflictions, they could have joy in the Holy Spirit. I don't think it's an accident that last week we talked about contentment and rejoicing and even some aspects of humility with Philippians, and now we're just turning right around in 1 Thessalonians and hearing much of the same concepts. We hear about joy in the Holy Spirit. We hear about humbleness in the midst of affliction, trusting in Jesus. And finally, we hear about the idolatry forsaken. What well, all of this sermon is based on, this idea that idolatry has been turned away from. Verse 9, For they themselves 
all the people in Macedonia report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you. They've heard about how they received Paul, how they received Silvanus and Timothy, that they responded to their words, that they responded to the gospel, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. I love how Paul says that. He doesn't just say that you turn from idols to serve the living and true God. No, he says you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. He emphasizes that they have turned, that they are now serving the true God. He mentions God twice in that verse. To God from idols to serve the living and true God. Idols are only mentioned once, but the emphasis is on that they have turned from that idolatry to the one true God, to serve him, to wait for his son from heaven, the one who gives them the hope to endure in the midst of persecution. And he reminds them that Jesus is the one he raised from the dead, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Idolatry is the core of so many of our sins. It may not be the reason for every one of our sins, but every time we sin, we are committing idolatry. Every time we break one of the Ten Commandments, we're also breaking the First Commandment. I am the Lord your God, you shall have no other gods before me. And then that God that is to stand before us only tells us how to live life. And when we break those commandments, then we're saying he is not the God who stands before us. There is another God that we are serving when we sin. The God of self, the God of greed, the God of lust. It doesn't matter what the other God is, we're serving some other God when we sin. We turn from the true and living God to serve an idol in our sin. That's something we have to reflect on and to recognize and to, to understand that as either Luther or John Calvin said, I've seen it attributed to both of them at different times, but I've never been able to find an exact quote that our hearts are idol factories. Our hearts love to create idols. They love to create false gods. They love to make up things that we can worship that aren't the one true God. And so every moment, in a sense, we are called to turn to God from idols, to serve the living and true God, to serve the one true God, to serve the God who created heaven and earth. But even more so, us being image bearers are called to worship the one true God. To worship idols is to deny that we are made in God's image. To worship idols is to turn from our godlikeness in that sense of being an image bearer and to turn to something else and to become in that object's image. Throughout the Old Testament, Isaiah has said these things. Many of the psalmists have said these things. That you become what you worship. You make idols of wood and gold and silver. They are deaf. They are blind. They are dumb. They can't move. They can't do anything. And you will become like them. As you pursue idolatry, you become deaf to the word of God. As you pursue idolatry, you become blind to the work of God around you. 
As you pursue idolatry, your mouth becomes stopped up and unable to speak of the God of, who created and redeems all things. That's the danger for believers when they don't recognize the idolatry at their hearts craft, the idolatry that lives within us constantly, that turns us from being image bearers of God and continually turns away from that reality to other things, to become images of idols. To turn away and toward idols is to turn from serving the living and true God, from living the life that he has called us into. Our very collect cries out and says, set us free from the bondage of our sins. In your goodness and mercy, give us the liberty of that abundant life which you have made known to us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. And I especially enjoy that it set us free, loving Father. Set us free, O Father, who loves us, who gives of himself to us, who cares for us, who has compassion, who has loved us so much. He has loved us in such a way that he sends his son to die for our sins, that he would be our savior. So set us free from that very bondage. That is the response of the Thessalonians. They saw their idols for what they were, false gods. False gods who held them in bondage. And they turned from that idolatry. They repented of that idolatry. And they repented toward God. They turned toward God. And now they turn to serve the living true God. We don't just turn to God, but we turn for a purpose. We turn for the purpose of serving. We turn for the purpose of loving. We turn for the purpose of receiving that abundant life. Once again, the idols cried out for service. They cried out for you to do all kinds of stuff for them for just a meager little acknowledgement. They just barely give you anything to get you by. They give you a little morsel to keep you coming back. But what does God give us in our salvation? He gives us complete forgiveness and he gives us liberty and abundant life by giving us his Holy Spirit and renewing us inwardly and outwardly that we might truly be the image bearers that we always have been. That image that has been marred and covered over and broken that is still there but so hard to identify. It becomes renewed by the Spirit dwelling within us, by this loving Father. As He sets us free from the bondage of our sins, He renews that image, and that image is Jesus Himself now. Jesus has become the one true image of God to be known. So what does God do? He makes us more like Christ. He brings out Christ-likeness in us. And that's a hard path for us as believers to walk ultimately, to desire to live a consistent life, to live in that abundant life, because it is an abundant life. It is a hard life. It is one that will be in affliction. It is one that will be a struggle at times to resist the idols within, to resist the idols without, to resist the sinfulness around us. But it's a path of an abundant life, which means that we have the Holy Spirit. We have the strength to resist. 
Because we can say, I am too weak to resist on my own, and I need the Holy Spirit. I need the grace of God himself to fill me. I need his favor to renew me and guide me on this path that I might not fall off of it. Once again, humility building out of faith. Humility that continually recognizes that you need Jesus, that I need Jesus. Above all, so that I can turn from idols, so that I can turn and serve, so that I can be an image bearer that lives to worship the true God. And so I pray for us today that this is what happens to us, that we become like the Thessalonians, that no matter what, we become a people who are humble in faith, and that with that faith we come into a new kind of life, that we come to discover, as our colleague says, that abundant life more deeply, that we find that the Father does set us free from our sins, that he acts as a loving Father guiding us and lifting us up, that he gives us more and more of Jesus in us, unites us more and more to him, that we would be changed more and more into Jesus, that we would become like him in every way, that we would follow him no matter what. The message Paul brought was a different message. It was a life-changing message. It was one that they had not heard. Forgiveness, mercy, compassion, renewal, redemption, and ultimately resurrection. In one town, they thought Paul was talking about two different gods because he kept talking about the resurrection and forgiveness. They thought resurrection was a God alongside Jesus. Just the concept of resurrection is so outside the minds of people. The concept of literally being brought back from the dead, being reconstituted and restored into a glory greater than we could ever imagine. That is the gift of salvation for us at the end, the hope that we live in endure all things to look forward to being with Jesus in the new heavens and the new earth, that we look forward to that and that that drives us forward in humility and love and kindness toward those around us. And so may the God of grace set us free from our bondage to sins, free us from our idolatry, free us from our hatred of him, that we would turn and serve him, that we would respond in love as he has loved us. May we always turn back to our Lord Jesus Christ and know his forgiveness and discover new humility. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. amen.